Well, good morning, Village Bible Church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us. I'm going to you take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of Ephesians this morning as we continue in our series entitled Fit Church. As a way of introduction, my name is Tim Bedall, and I serve as the teaching pastor here at the church. It's been my pleasure over the last uh, month to be uh, opening up God's Word. And uh, in essence, what we've done is we've, uh, we've made an appointment with the great physician, We've asked him to, uh, uh, to do a physical, if you will, to run tests on, on us, not as individuals per se, but on us as a church, uh, to run uh, the gamut of, of tests that will help us to define whether we are a healthy and vibrant church by looking at some important indicators of health uh, that a church must have. And over these past couple of weeks, what we have done is we've addressed uh, what a healthy church should be uh, preaching like. Uh, what a healthy church should uh, have as its main beliefs and understanding of of the Holy Scriptures, uh, and what a uh, healthy church understands as the gospel, literally the main theme uh, of the Bible and and the story of of Jesus Christ and what he has done uh, for us. And this week we come to what is the tangible outcome of a church that has a biblical view of the gospel is the changed lives that come as a result of it. We're going to talk about a theological term uh, that we use called conversion this morning. Uh, Other theologians will use the word regeneration. And what I want to do is show you how important and practical that theological term is and, and to help you understand and answer the question, what does it mean to be born again this morning? A fundamental question that that each church should be able to answer, and as a, as a, a result, each individual that's sitting in the pews this morning should be able to leave today, being able to answer that question, am I truly born again, or is there something that is missing in my life uh, that the born again experience, being saved by the work of Jesus Christ, uh, is missing in my life that needs to change. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we are going to look at what it means to have a biblical view. If we want to be that fit church that God calls us to be, that we can be a vibrant uh, and uh, life-changing place, we need to understand what conversion's all about and, and how you and I have been saved by the work of Jesus Christ. So grab that outline in front of you and, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. We're going to be on page 976, page 976. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and uh, we're going to ask God's blessing on our time together, and, uh, and then we'll jump right into the text. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus, and as an extension to us today. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those uh, of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father God, we come before you again as a sign of our dependence that we need you. We need you here in this moment. We need you to teach us your word. We need you to open our ears and open our hearts to be receptive to what you have to say. Lord, as Chad prayed this morning, we've come from a myriad of weeks, and we need to hear what it means when you make a dead person alive again. And so, Lord, I pray that I would speak clearly and that we would be listening intently to what you, the great teacher, have to teach us this morning. So one, we will know that we are truly born again. And second, Lord, that we will take that message of the good news of Jesus Christ and share it with all those who are in need of it. To you be the glory, honor, and praise. We give it all to you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. For those that have never had a child before, especially the young men in our midst, at some point when you're married and your wife becomes pregnant, you're going to have to do some things that maybe you weren't planning on doing, some sacrifices, you know. One of those sacrifices is, is eating for two. You know, I know that's difficult, but uh, you do that to make your wife feel a little more, uh, less sensitive, if you will, of, of the larger portions that she's, she's eating. And so we, we do that as a sacrifice, and uh, we're willing to do that. But another sacrifice that I remember early on, especially when Amanda was pregnant with Noah, was her TV watching changed. She started watching the channel TLC. And we had to watch a, a TV program, a reality show called A Baby Story. And so we would turn on this reality show, and, and we would have to watch it, and I would endure the hour of, of watching that baby story. And what the story was, or the show was, was a, a, a show chronicling different couples on their journey from conception all the way to uh, the culmination of the pregnancy and the birth of a, a new baby. And they would talk and, and, and interview the, the happy couple. They would go on doctor's visits with them. But the majority of the, the time was dedicated to the, the delivery. Now, with every different episode, and we watched a lot of them, and I was a good husband in doing so, there were different backgrounds to every one. Each couple had a different story. With each pregnancy, there were various experiences. One would have a very easy pregnancy, if you could call it that. I know I'm walking on some thin ice there. While others had very difficult pregnancies. And then the time of delivery would come, and one would have it in the hospital. Another one would have it at home. Uh, Some would have them in beds, while others would have them in swimming pools. Some were very private events where only the husband and wife, of course, were present. Uh, there, my favorite episode was one that she, the, the husband and wife had invited the entire family to be a part of it. And the thing that I got a kick out of, there was a buffet table of food on the side, and you would see as the camera would pan, the same guy just kept going to the buffet line and just enjoying, he'd come out with this beautiful sandwich, and here there's all kinds of chaos going on over here, but he's grabbing chips and dip and all of that. And so every story was different. Every pregnancy uh, was a different experience altogether. And yet, amidst all the differences from uh, the different couples to the different places they lived, to the different types of pregnancies they had, to the different types of deliveries, 
the same result always took place. A baby was born. And you would have in that same moment the excitement and the fulfillment of all that had gone on those nine months prior to it. What I want to do this morning is to take a kind of a, a, uh, a part of that show and put it into our lives spiritually. You see, all of us come from different places. We've all in some ways experienced Jesus in different ways. Some of us were, were a part of a very public uh, experience where, where Jesus was preached and proclaimed and, and you accepted Christ and you, you bowed the knee to his rule in your life and you did it in a public way. Still others of you did it in a private way. Some were young when that took place. Some were old. Some came from all different uh, difficulties and all kinds of crazy lifestyles. Still others of you were, were well-behaved little boys and girls. We We all have our story. We all have our experience. But at the end of the day, to call yourself a Christian means that a birth had to take place. There had to be a new life that was conceived in our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. That is the idea behind this this word, conversion. And so I want to study this idea of conversion for a couple moments and ask the question, what does it mean to be born again? And to answer that question in your outlines, I want to ask a couple questions and try to answer them so that we can then be able to understand what it does mean to be born again. And the first question we have to ask is, why in the world do we study conversion? Why study it? If it's a theological term, let the pastors understand it and know it. But do we as a church, do you as a lay people, parishioners, attenders of a local church, why in the world do you need to worry about it? Some of you might say, at the end of the day, all I really want to know is I want to see people come to know Jesus. The mechanics behind it, I really, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't affect me. I want to be able, in essence, to put the key in the car, start it up and drive and not wonder what's going on under the hood. But I'm here to tell you that there is of great importance for us, especially as followers of Jesus Christ, to know how we go from death to life. Because if we don't know that, then how can we be the ones that share that good news of Jesus Christ with others? And we need to be very careful because if we mix up this idea of conversion, we will start to give people a sense of assurance even though they have a half-hearted faith. And so we want to be very clear as to what we are saying it takes to be born again. Now, on the side of your outlines, I want you to write down a couple things. What conversion is not. And so we'll get to what conversion is in a moment, but what it is not. First of all, conversion is not a one-time event, one-time event that has no implications on how you live. It is not a one-time event that carries no implications as to how you are going to live. What that means is that, yes, conversion does happen in a moment. At some point in time, whether you can identify it or not, there was a moment where your heart and affections turned to Christ in a way that you saw him as all-glorious and not just one of many options. And that happened in a moment, but notice, it is a moment, conversion is a moment of radical change. What that means is that after being converted, your life and my life should look altogether different. 
Because a new creation has begun, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, a new creation has begun and a new battle ensues. And we'll talk about that battle in a moment. So it's not just this one-time event where you do something in the moment and then you go on living the same way that you once did. That there's a change that takes place. Number two, it is, it, conversion is not a journey with no destination. It is not a journey with no destination. What I mean by that is conversion is preceded by a long process. And it's always involving a committed decision to repent of our sins and trust in Christ. And the immediate result is that God gives us new life to the spiritually dead sinner. And so we have this thing that takes place within us that prolongs a journey that leads to holiness. And so conversion will always lead to greater and greater levels of holiness in the one who is converted. Number three, conversion is not optional. It is not optional. Acts 17.30 says that God commands, not suggests, not offers, God commands all people everywhere to repent. While conversion is never forced, it is absolutely necessary to be saved. You cannot be saved without a change taking place in your life. Number four, conversion is not a conversation. While Christians are to communicate the gospel humbly, our goal is not a mere pleasant exchange of information. But at some point, listen, and we'll talk about this next week, evangelism is not simply you just telling the story of how Jesus has changed you. At some point, the gospel message has to turn to the individual and say, what are you going to do about it? You just simply can't be a biographical sketch of what God has done, and you'll say, well, nobody will disagree with that. And I get that, but at some point, you have to turn the the equation around and ask the question, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Has Christ paid for your sins, and have you bowed the knee in allegiance and submission to him? And so it can't just be this, uh, if you will, conversation where you tell a story without getting to the point of asking the individual, will you repent of your sins? Number five, Finally, it is not, conversion is not saying a formulaic prayer, some sort of formula prayer, or doing some outward ritual. What that means is that baptism can't save you, it doesn't convert you, taking communion doesn't convert you, saying the sinner's prayer in and of itself, while prayer may be an important part of the conversion experience, that in fact does not save you. Walking down the sawdust trail, if you will, does not save you. Whatever outward rituals that you may have been a part of, you cannot put your hope and faith that that activity, that experience was what changed you Because conversion is not that. Conversion has less to do with us and a whole lot more to do with God. So what is conversion? Write this down somewhere. Conversion is a U-turn in a person's life. It's a U-turn. We all get that. We all understand what that is. My wife and I were driving uh, on the highway and Amanda was, was doing the driving. She missed the exit that we were supposed to take. And I, as a good husband and as a backseat driver, told her, you missed the exit. We got we to gotta turn around, and we did a U-turn, meaning we were heading uh, north, and we needed to turn around and head south. We had to go in the opposite direction. And so conversion, spiritually, is a life that is living and heading, if you will, north, 
going its own way. And God says, if you want to be with me, you got to turn around and do a 180 turn, degree turn, and head in my direction. So it's a U-turn in a person's life. Well, what's the U-turn about? It is the turning with one's whole person away from sin and to Christ for salvation. Now, there's an important part in that statement. It's the whole person change. Listen, conversion is not changing what you do on Sunday morning. It is not saying, well, now I'm going to go to church, and, and, and I have never gone to church, and so now I'm converted. Now I'm doing something holy uh, on Sunday. No, it is meaning your entire life. Conversion impacts all of who you are, not just part of it. You're turning away from your sin, and you're turning to Christ for salvation. You're turning away from idol worship, and, and literally all the things that we worship uh, instead of God, we turn from that, and we turn to God worship. From our own self-justification that we're okay, that we're doing pretty good, all of that stops. We stop heading in that direction, and we start saying, we agree with you, Jesus Christ. We are failures. We are sinners. We have failed and broken your law. We have broken uh, and trespassed against you, God. And because you are holy, we're in a whole heap of trouble. We need you now, Christ, to do what you have done to take over our lives and pay for our sin. It's from self-rule to God's rule. And so that is, in layman's term, what conversion is all about. And the question this morning is, have you been converted? Have you done that 180-degree U-turn where you've turned from your sin and turned to the Savior? Well, if you say yes, I want to remind you that it is not a place for you to applaud yourself. Because remember, it's more about God than it is about you. If you've never done that, today is the day that your ears should be opened up and you should be listening because those who are not converted, the Bible says, will spend eternity in hell if they never make that U-turn in this present life. And so there are huge ramifications to what we're talking about this morning. So why does it matter? Well, let me give you some reasons why it may matter. They're in your outline this morning. Why should a church have a biblical view of conversion? Number one, it helps us to examine our own decision. And what I mean by that is, is that we need to ask the question this morning, am I truly converted? I'm teaching a theology class. Some of you are in it on Sunday nights. And we have been dealing with a, an old statement in church history that talks about the visible church, that is a church like Sugar Grove, one that we can see and be a part of. And, and the, one of the church reformers once said that the church is filled with both saints and hypocrites. And what that means is that there are some, even though our attendance is down probably because of the holiday weekend, even with a smaller crowd this morning, there are people who are converted in our place, Okay? But there are also amongst us individuals who are not converted. Now, you would readily agree with that because we know that each week we have visitors that come in. We have individuals maybe that are visiting with family or, or friends of, of people that attend our church that have come maybe to investigate. But they're altogether indifferent against God and, and his word. But that's not what the scripture's talking about. I'm sorry, what the quote is talking about, that the church is full of saints and hypocrites. What it's saying is, is there are people within the church, a part of Village Bible Church, who, who seemingly uh, love to be here. They love to do things within the church, but they are not themselves saved. 
They're going through the motions, but they themselves have never been converted. They have never come to a place where Christ has done that 180-degree turn in their life, and as a result, that they are fundamentally different than when they came in before. And as a result of that, we have to ask this question this morning, am I in the faith? Now, I don't want to question someone's assurance in Christ Jesus, but the Apostle Paul says we need to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith or not. So the very question of this issue of conversion forces me, the preacher, and you, the people, to ask the question this morning, am I in the faith? And so that should be the question of all of us. It's the question that I'm asking this morning. It's the question you should be asking this morning, am I in the faith? That's what conversion will will help us with. Number two, it will set the church's direction. There are a lot of churches that have a view that man is in need of some enlightenment, man is in need of some reformation, not rebirth. If we are only needing a little pick-me-up, our preaching will be different, the way we communicate the gospel will be different, the kind of ministries we're a part of will be different, what we will find end up we'll be doing is a bunch of wonderful programs that could be duplicated in any community center Because all we need to do is be a helping hand to uh, a world full of wonderful people who maybe have just lost their way and they just need a little, a little change. Or as we view conversion, do we see ourselves not needing reformation, but rebirth? Are we just a little lost in our ways or are we completely dead in our trespasses and sin? Is there some good in us? Or is there nothing spiritually? Are we spiritually bankrupt? That question will be answered by a church when they answer the question on the issue of conversion. What does conversion mean for man? What does it mean for God? And how do we define that within the church? Number three, it confirms how the gospel is to be declared. If we are foggy on our understanding of conversion then we will fall prey to sharing an incomplete or defective gospel with individuals. Sadly, most modern-day tools or devices that Christians, that you and I have used to articulate the gospel, fall short of presenting a complete gospel. And the job of your elders is to bring clarity so that this, so that when we share Christ... We share Christ in such a way that we can be confident that the message we're proclaiming doesn't fall short. Let me, let me put it in layman's terms. How devastating would it be to get to heaven, to stand before God, and the individual that you shared your faith with, okay, and you shared the gospel with, gets up to heaven and you articulated something less than the complete gospel, That what it is, is all you need to do is say yes to Jesus. That's it. You don't need to change your life. You don't need to do anything else. Just make a decision. Raise your hand at the end of the sermon, and you're all good. That person gets up to heaven. They stand before God, and they said, but I did what Tim told me to do. I raised my hand. Why can't I come in? To which Jesus says, that's not the gospel. We need to be so very careful. People's eternities hang in the balance, and we need to be sure that we are proclaiming a gospel. And it's not, it's not difficult. We just need to rightly uh, present it so that we can be confident that when we tell someone they're saved, they can have full assurance that that is the case. And so we need to bring clarity to it because our evangelism is going to rise and fall in it. Number four... 
conversion provides grounds for church discipline. What do I mean by that? Of course, church discipline is where we take an individual within our church who confesses to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who over a period of time and, and many admonitions and many warnings continues to push away accountability to continue to pursue sin and live a life contrary to their confession. If we believe that conversion changes the person and does a U-turn in their entire being, that while a Christian who is converted can sin and can sin at times grievously, the pattern of their life, because the power of the Holy Spirit is working in them, because they are a new creation in Christ, will not continue to go on sinning, 1 John says. And so the pattern, what, what conversion does, it does not, does not mean perfection. Conversion means there's a new pattern of living that when the Holy Spirit has got us, he's got us 100%. Now here's the thing. If conversion simply is, well, I believe in some certain facts about Jesus, but I don't have to live that way to be saved, then you've got no grounds for church discipline. There's no grounds for it. If, church, if uh, conversion means that you're going to live differently, you're going to talk differently and walk differently and pursue a whole new set of ideals and, and pursuits, well, then we've got something to hold them to because what we're saying in each of our lives is hold me accountable in my conversion. Hold me accountable to what I say I have been converted from. And so we've got nothing in the way of church discipline unless we have a biblical view of this. And so there's the reason why. So now we come to question number two. And the question number two is, do we really need the change? Do we really need the change? That's a question that churches deal with all the time. Do we really need that kind of radical change? Are we really that bad off? Implicit within the word conversion is the idea of change, right? That we have something in our lives within us that's unacceptable to God. That we need someone to do something that we cannot do on our own. Something that allows us to see the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God in our sinful condition. Now we live in a world that that doesn't know much about rebirth. But what we do know a lot of, what we see a lot of, is the idea of a makeover. And on TV, we see makeovers of homes. We see makeovers of cars. We even are seeing more and more the makeover of people, a transformation, if you will. You watch on some programs, you'll see a makeover done on a business. We have makeovers going on all over the place. But let me emphatically say the following. No makeover will cover your sin or make you right with God. There's not enough makeup or paint or new ideas or new vision or new mission statements that will reestablish a right standing with God. So a makeover is not good enough. What do we need? We need to be born again. Where do we get that? You say, well, wait a minute. You read a passage of Scripture. You haven't talked about it. This is where we get into the passage of Scripture. Paul reminds us this morning in Ephesians chapter 2 that a makeover is not good enough. Changing some things in your schedule or your day planner isn't good enough. There needs to be something so radical that changes in your life because you are so radically sinful 
You need not a a, a done-up life, a made-up life. You need something that takes your old, as the book of Ezekiel says, your stony heart out and puts in a live, fleshy heart. There needs to be a heart transplant that takes place so that you who are dead, I who was dead in my sins and trespasses, can be made alive in Christ. Well, Look at how Paul describes us. This gives us the basis of our conversion. Notice, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Let's stop there. What Paul says is, all right, you want to know why you need a conversion? You're a corpse. Write that down. You are a corpse. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. Well, I've never seen the show, nor do I think that I would recommend it based on the previews and advertisements I've seen. There's a show that has seemingly gotten really popular called The Walking Dead. If you've seen in the advertisements a story about zombies who in some post-apocalyptic scenario are now feeding on the live people, if you will, of, uh, of the world. We are zombies spiritually in our sin. We aren't just needing a quick pick-me-up. We are people who are dead in need of life. We are zombies going about this life pursuing selfishness and sin. Paul says, once and for all, That conversion is a born-again experience because there's no life in you and I when we're in our sin. This idea of spiritual death, of being a spiritual, if you will, zombie, involves two things. Number one, because of our sin, we're alienated from God. That is, we're hostile towards Him. We have no kinship with Him. We want nothing to do with Him. When we have the opportunity to choose God or our sin, people in their sinful place will always choose self over the Savior. There's nothing that we can do to ever reunite us with God. We've got a problem. We are not connected to the only life giver. Secondly, being alienated from God means that you and I are given to all kinds of sin and depravity. We talk about this when we speak in our church doctrinal statement of the total depravity of man. This is what the Reformers talked about during the great Protestant Reformation. They articulated, as Scripture does over and over again, that we may not be as sinful as we could be. What I mean by that is you and I are not all Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitlers, and Jeffrey Dahmers, okay? We may not be as bad as we could be, but total depravity says that every part of our being has been affected by our sinful states. It affects our head. It affects our heart. It affects our hands. And notice, all of us are included. We all walked in this way. We all were doing this at some point in our lives. And it caused us, notice, to walk where we should not walk. Total depravity causes us to think like we should not think. To go where we should not go. To do what we should not do. To serve what we should not serve. To follow what we should not follow to obey what we should not obey, to gratify what we should not gratify, to crave what we should not crave, to desire what we should not desire, to dishonor what we should not dishonor. The idea here is as we head on that highway to hell, we are going in total opposition to God with no thought of remorse or regret in our mind. That's what Paul is saying. 
what spiritual dead people are thinking and doing. Why is it? Notice next, he says, we're controlled. We're controlled. Well, why were we doing this? Well, we're following the course of this world, verse 2 says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, let's stop there for a second. He, he says, the reason why you're doing this is you're, you're following three things. The trio of terror, if you will, spiritually. Number one, you're controlled by the world. You follow the ways of the world. I follow the ways of the world. We walk in its ways. What it means is the world carries the power of definition in our lives. It sets our direction, and we long and love to walk in its ways. A commentator by the name of Trench said this, We pursue the floating mass of the world's thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations at any given time. So whatever the world's advertising, we want to pursue it. Now the idea of being controlled, let me back up for a moment, is the idea literally you're on a leash. And so some of us have dogs. And what we have with our dogs as we walk them is a leash is to control them, number one, from running away, from going after things we don't want it to, but also recognize the leash can be keeping someone from good things. And so what's happening is the the devil is holding the leash in our lives, the world in our flesh, that trio of terror is holding the leash in our lives, and when we uh, are pursuing maybe something good, it pulls on us. It pulls on us and it keeps us from pursuing anything good. And that's why we, in, in and of ourselves, will never follow Christ, never pursue Christ, because the leash is always pulling us back. So notice, we've got the world pulling at our leash. We've got the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the disobedient. We need to understand that we can go one of two ways with regards to the devil. We can find a devil behind every bush. Or we can say that he's just a, uh, a guy in red pajamas with a pitchfork. There's a middle ground. The devil is a powerful, powerful angel or demon who rebelled against God. He was powerful enough in his thinking to think that he could take on God and win. And a third of the angels who had seen God in his glory thought he could do so as well. So what we're dealing with is not some small man or something that we should be tri- trifling with. We've got a spirit that's against us. And notice, he is described as the prince of the power of the air. The idea is, is while he is not omnipresent, he seemingly is all over the place. Just as the air and the atmosphere that we're a part of is is all around us, so the devil is all around us working his magic, if you will. And so what has he got us pursuing? He has us pursuing a worship of self and a scoffing at our need of a savior because we bought into the devil's lies, seeking to elevate ourselves and worship self when our focus should be on the savior. And so we've got this one who is doing his work, making sure that we will never follow Christ or pursue him. And then we've got another enemy. It's our flesh. And our flesh, it says, that we are carrying out the desires of the body, verse 3. We live out the passions of our flesh. We have found a life that is satisfying. Not in following God, But in our sin, the satisfying life comes when we satisfy self. 
When we take care of self, when we comfort self, when we uh, feed self, when we nurture uh, the things that we desire. And so we make a determination in our lives that the only true contentment that can be found in this world is if I am happy or if it feels good or if it feels right. And all we need to do is find a growing number of people to agree with us on that. And we applaud those who are doing the same things we are doing. We are pursuing a life that is hell-bent on taking care of self instead of worshiping the Savior. So we're controlled. And it's powerful. And some of you recognize that because you look at your former way of life and say, how in the world could I have gotten to that place? It was either your flesh, the devil, or the world, or all three of them combined, fighting against you in your sinful state. Notice what happens as a result. We're condemned. We're condemned. Notice in verse 4, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We live in a world that preaches exclusively about the love of God. And yes, God is love, but he is also in total balance, righteousness and justice. And in our fallen state, you and I find ourselves under the wrath of God. This wrath defined as God's holy hatred against sin, representing his essential divine antagonism against everything that is evil. God is directly opposed to sin. And when your life is defined by sin, he directly opposes you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You are an enemy of God in your sinful state. And what God says he is doing is he's pouring out his wrath on all unrighteousness. Well, what is wrath? It's the unbridled anger it is a swelling anger that over the course, I'm sorry, it is not an unbridled anger, but a swelling anger that over the course of time will eventually burst. It applies more to an anger that proceeds from one settled nature. What it is, is he's not a, a toddler having a temper tantrum, but he is one who is patiently growing in his anger that at some point it will become undone, it will be poured out. So conversion, listen, is the biblical response that you and I understand how sinful we are. We're blind, we're dead, we're held captive by the evil one, and we have no hope for anything because you and I are spiritually bankrupt. Pick me up sermon this morning, isn't it? Well, then what needs to happen? Question number three, what are the components necessary for this new birth? If we're objects of God's wrath... If we're blind, dead, and held captive, what hope do we have? None. You have no hope. There's no hope whatsoever in and of yourself. But Paul articulates that while we have no hope from a human perspective, there is God. He's the beginning, the middle, and end of our salvation. He brings everything, and we bring nothing. This is why I believe that the two most important words in all of Scripture are found in our passage in verse 4. But God. You and I were full of sin. But God. You and I are selfish. But God. You and I are disobedient to our parents. But God. We are unfaithful, but God. We are swift to shed blood, but God. We are full of lust, 
but God. Our mouths are full of lies, but God. We trade the natural for the unnatural, but God. We covet and we quarrel with others, but God, but God, but God, and an infinite amount of but God. The gospel is we are completely sinful, but God in his amazing love for us rescues us from our sin and our shame. That should awaken our hearts this morning. If you've experienced that, you should be singing hymns from the rooftop of what God has done in your life because you and I were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. You see, conversion is what happens when God awakens those who are spiritually dead and enables them to repent of their sins and have faith in Jesus Christ. So how does he do that? How does he take uh, just filthy, rotten, dirty scoundrels like we are, spiritual zombies, how does he take us and make us saints? Number one, he passionately loves us. In his great mercy and because of his great love for us. I saw on Facebook this week uh, a a pithy, if you will, little statement uh, that you would put on uh, uh, on a card that you would give to your mother. And it said the following. When you look into the eyes of your mother, you see the eyes of the most sacrificial love that you will ever know. That's nice. It's not true. I love my mom, and she has, she has sacrificed greatly for me. But it is Jesus within whose eyes we look and see the greatest sacrificial love that there has ever been. It is Jesus in his great love for us that while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, while we were inevitably rebelling against God, God wrapped his arms around you and I. He loved us with an agape love, a love that comes from the heart of God himself. Not because of what we did, not because of a righteousness of our own, but because of his mercy, Titus 3 tells us, that he saved us out of his good pleasure. It's hard to describe this love, and even those profound men have difficulty, but I want you to notice what F.B. Meyer says in his commentary on this uh, scripture. In the day that we were born... We were cast out into the open field, dead in trespasses and sin, and to the abhorring of our person. But he, Jesus, loved us even then. His great love was not diverted by the spectacle of our lonesomeness. He knew what we were and what we should be and how much pain and sorrow we should cost him. But he still loved us. He foresaw our failures and our backsliding and our lapses into the darkness of shadow. But none of these things availed to quench his love. So rich was he in his mercy that he could afford to be prodigal of his wealth. My goodness, do you understand the love that God has for us? Notice F.B. Meyer goes on. He says it's a great comfort. Is that on there or did we not get that on there? Okay. It is of great comfort to know that God loved us when there was nothing to attract us to his love. Because he will not be surprised by anything he discovers in us. He will not turn from us as those manifestations of evil will sometimes make us lose heart. He knew the worst from the first. 
He did not love us because we were fair, but to make us so. We cannot understand it, but since he began, he will not fail, nor will he be discouraged until he has finished his work. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have been converted by the power of God, you should never wonder when you sin, is God still with me? Because here's the thing, you were as bad as you were when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and he demonstrated his love for you while you were a sinner. Christ died for you. What in the world is he going to be surprised with now in the future? And that's why we can have full assurance of faith. He's made us alive. The hymn writer put it this way. Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies a parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the whole scroll contain the whole. Though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall ever, forevermore endure. It is the saints and angels' song. Are you loved by God? Have you ever asked that question? Am I standing in opposition to God or am I standing being loved by the God of this universe? Notice he doesn't just love us, he puts life back into us. We were made alive in Christ. Do you know what it took to convert your wayward heart? It took the death of the second person of the Trinity to die on a cross, to take yours, your guilt and mine. And the answer is told what it took in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Go back to that very quickly. Notice what Paul says. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. Notice, what did it take for you and I to be converted? The same immeasurable greatness of his power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen, the same power that God used to raise his son from the grave is the same thing that called you out from the tomb. And so God looked at you. Listen, he looked at me in my helpless estate and he said, I loved him. And you guys would agree with this. I'm not sure why. But I do. I love him because I can change him and I can make him, the worst of sinners, a saint, a follower of mine that will be a wonderful testimony to all other sinners of what work God can do. Look at how messed up Badal was and look at the change I've made in him. Well, how am I going to do it? It's going to take a lot. Jesus, you're going to have to die for Tim. And when you die... I'm going to have to unload the power of heaven and I'm going to have to draw him out of that tomb. The same resurrecting power that was experienced by Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday is the same thing that transpires when our heart turns to Christ. You were dead, but God made you alive. He made you alive. He put life back into you. Now he's made you alive. Now listen, he doesn't just take you from the grave and leave you in the cemetery. Notice he powerfully lifts you up. He takes you and seats you in the heavenly realms with Christ. 
What that means, there are two meanings to that. Number one, God raises us into a place where we no longer are under the sphere of the devil, the world, and our flesh. The leash is taken off of us. We rise above it based on the grace of God. We are seated, which shows an amazing intimacy with our Savior and our Lord. We're sitting next to Him. And we're enjoying all the benefits. Some, some years ago, I got invited to, to a Bulls game, and I was told we're going to a, a, a press box, or not press box, a sky box. And it was a, a, a Bulls game, and I was told I'm going to the owner's sky box. And in the owner's skybox was uh, uh, old man Wirtz, the owner of the Chicago Blackhawks. Let me tell you, when you're sitting with the owner of one of the teams that plays in that building, whatever that man wants, he gets. He said, I want for everybody at my skybox to have spaghetti and meatballs. We're having spaghetti and meatballs. They went to Rosebud Italian Restaurant, and they brought, people brought spaghetti with massive meatballs because when you're hanging with the guy that owns the place, you get what the owner gets. And what we get as followers of Jesus Christ, God doesn't just say, okay, I lift you up, give you a little stepladder. He takes you from the cemetery and he puts you at the banquet table and he says, you're with me. Whatever I get, you get. That's what conversion is all about. Notice because he provides lavishly for us. Instead of God pouring out his wrath, He lavishes us with every gift under heaven that you and I have everything we need in Christ. Because of what we have in Christ, you and I need nothing spiritually because we have a God who gives it generously. And remember, all of this is done while you and I were still sinners. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, how do we respond? We could talk more about this. We could invest a lot of time. But let me remind you of what the rest of the passage says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He's raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are three truths that come out of that last part of the passage. Number one, what conversion means is that we will respond by resting in God's saving grace. What conversion is not, is not you coming with all the things that you've done trying to coax Jesus into letting you into heaven. And some of you are trying to do that right now. Even though this church doesn't preach that, you're looking at your church attendance and you're saying, got that down? Been helping in Awana? Got that down? Listen to Tim's long sermons? Got that down? I'm giving money to the church? Got that down? Man, I'm, I'm just building a case for me to get into heaven. Let me tell you something. The only way you and I get into heaven is if we lay flat on our faces and say, I got nothing, God. You've got everything. By grace, you are saved. Unmerited favor. You didn't bring anything to the table except your garbage, and God gives you the riches of heaven. It is by God's grace, by God's grace, by God's grace. But... 
God's grace is seen in faith. Even faith being a gift of God's. Faith sees God for who he is. Faith is seeing what the human eye cannot see. Faith is discerning the spiritual things of God. Well, how in the world do we do it? God gives us the gift of faith. He tells us, here is what you need to be able to see me. Here are your new eyes. Here are your new heart. Here are your new feet that will draw you to me, that will bring you to the cross and see your sin and see my gloriousness. And it is faith that sees and obeys. And so we rest in God's saving grace. But to rest in God's saving grace means to see our sin for what it is. And so we rest in God's grace and by faith we repent of our sins. Meaning we do that U-turn. We do it not because God's uh, dragging us along. But we do it because as, as Lazarus did. When Jesus awakened him, Lazarus didn't say, you know, remember the story? Jesus comes, they're crying. It's been days that Lazarus has been in the tomb. And Jesus, you came too late, the sisters say. And Jesus says, hey, Lazarus, come forth. And then the voice, I don't want to. I like it here. Leave me alone. None of that is said. What does Lazarus do? What every dead person will do if they're given the option of life, they will rise up and walk out and come face to face with their Savior. He did what a dead person does not knew. He got up and he walked to Jesus. And that in conversion is what we do. We do what we cannot do. We rise up because Jesus tells us to. And we come to Jesus leaving our dead life behind. So it involves repentance, turning from our sin. But think of this, repentance is not a work in and of ourselves. It too is a gift of God. You and I cannot repent without the gift of God through Christ Jesus. That's why we rest in his grace. And notice we respond in service. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works. Luther, Luther, the great leader of the Protestant Reformation, the one who was so hell-bent at works do not save us said this, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Let me say that again. Some of you may not have followed. We are justified by faith alone. That's, that's all we got. A gift of God, a faith through Christ Jesus. That's all we've got. But that faith is never alone. Meaning you cannot, as James says, say, here's my faith and show no works. A new life is going to do something. And so one of the questions you have to ask this morning is, am I responding to God in service not to save me, but to show that I'm secure in Him? Because conversion will always lead to obedience. It will always lead to a desire and a commitment to serve Him. To give to Him, to worship Him, to teach others about Him, to proclaim the good news about Him, to tell a dying world about Him, because He has taken you from death to life. And He's calling people everywhere to bow the knee to Him. So let me ask you, have you experienced conversion? What was a stodgy, Big theological term, I hope and pray now, has become very practical for you this morning. Have you been born again? If not, God's calling you today.
God's giving you ears to hear today. Will you respond? Because you never know. You never know. I've had a week this week where I learned you never know when your days will be done. So don't leave this place until you can say without a shadow of a doubt, I've experienced the conversion, the life-giving conversion of Jesus Christ. I know what it means to be born again. So here's what I'm going to tell you to do. We're going to dismiss this church, and we're going to let you go. And if you, have, if you have any doubt in your mind that that's not the case, I'm going to stand up here. I'm going to be here. We've got guys in the back. We've got people sitting around you. Just pull one of them and say, hey, I don't know what it means to be born again. Help me. I don't want to leave this place and have that question not answered. We want to answer that question before you leave this place. It is the most important question that you will ever ask, and you need an answer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Oh, the love that you have shown us. While we were dead in our trespasses and sin, you made us alive in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus Christ. What an amazing God we serve. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts now. That you would bring us from death to life. That you would open our blind eyes. That you would cut the chains of bondage of sin and the devil's grasp on our life. And that we might be able to turn to you. Oh, Lord, I pray today would be the day. We would never leave this place until we know for sure because we do not know what a day might bring. So, Lord, I pray that that would be the reality. For those that are converted, Lord, those who have experienced this life-changing power, that we would live in reality of it, Lord. We would not cower in fear, that we would not uh, feel like we are losing the battle. Lord, the battle's already been won. Victory is already yours. And so, Lord, let us leave this place victorious, knowing that you have done all that needed to be done, and we now bask in the glory of it. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you a hundred thousand times over for what you have done. Now send us forth, Lord, to be deliverers of this good news, that we might see those who are dead made alive in Christ because of the gospel that we preach. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen.